So the first question for each of you, the 10, I'm gonna give you 10 seconds just to think about, do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe it? And you go, of course you believe it. Well, if you believe it, are you doing anything differently? Probably not. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And now for the last talk of today. I can think of no better, no better to do the closing keynote than Chris Colbert. Chris will not tell you necessarily what you want to hear, but he will certainly tell you what you need to hear. He will make you fundamentally reflect about why you're doing what it is you're doing and why understanding human behavior is so crucial and fundamental and where it all begins. Personally, I have been a huge fan of Chris since I met him in 2018 in Singapore at the Singapore FinTech Festival. In 2019, he came to Copenhagen and we were so fortunately to have him and we are so fortunately to have him again here in 2020 at Copenhagen FinTech Week Global Edition. Chris recently published a book called This Is It about how to take advantage of the only life we get and is currently working on his second book, Technology is Dead. And that book is about the importance of inserting more humanity into technology and technolo technological advances that increasingly surround us and seemingly define us. It is with great, great honor and a great deal of humbleness that I present to you Mr. Chris Colbert. Take it away, Chris. Wow. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, everybody, for uh, patching into this. I'm honored by Thomas's words, and I feel very much the same about him. So thank you for that. So I have to start by saying, when I told my wife, Kate, that Thomas had invited me to give a talk on sustainability, she laughed. And reasonably, I, you know, I, the truth is, I am not an environmental scientist. I'm not an economist. I'm not a fintech expert. What I am, how I describe myself is I'm a, I'm a globalist first and a humanist second, and I think thirdly, a truth teller. And as Thomas alluded to or stated, you know, sometimes what I say is hard to hear. People don't want to hear it. Kate, my wife, often doesn't want to hear it. And so I want to start by just sharing a truth, which I think everybody knows, but I think we are really brilliant at pushing it away. And that is this, that all we have is our humanity and the planet that feeds us. That's all, that is literally all we have. All, this, all the buildings, all the, all, the, all the clothes, all the technologies, all the stuff doesn't actually matter. What matters is our humanity and the planet that feeds us. And the truth is, if we kill it, we kill us. And the truth is, we are effectively killing it and ultimately going to kill us unless we change our behavior. And I think more specifically to this conference, I think we can all use technology generally and fintech technology specifically to either save ourselves or worse, to, to kill ourselves. Another truth is nobody's going to remember what I just said 
or what I'm about to say. Not nobody, probably 1% of you might remember 1% of what I'm about to say because you're human and that's just what humans do. I mean, you've been patching in for the last two or three days and heard lots of different things from lots of different people. And the fact of the matter is if I asked you what you remembered, it would, it would not be a long list, it would be a pretty short list. So, so I wanna just tell you what I believe and the 1% that really matters right now, and that is this. The issue of sustainability is actually an issue of behaviors. Everything Drew said, I subscribe to her analysis of, of what's going on at a financial, at a model level. Everything is absolutely correct. There is great positive movement, but fundamentally the issue of sustainability is really about our, our choices in terms of the behaviors we exhibit or don't exhibit to result in a different outcome for our planet, for our countries, for our continents, for our communities, for our families, for our children. It's a, it's a choice of behaviors, first and foremost. And, and you know, I really do believe that behavior is the root function of all, of all, all action, all decision-making, and ultimately all consequence. And so if we want the outcome for the planet to be different, we want a different consequence, then I think you have to look at behavior. The problem is our behavior, your behavior, it's all really complicated stuff. And, and what I'm going to share with you over the next 20 minutes or so is also going to be a little complicated. And so one of the things I want to do in recognition of your behavior is a, two or three times during my talk, I'm going to just stop for 15 to 20 seconds and let you think about what I said. I'm just going to be silent and let you think about what I said, because I think by doing that, I increase the chance of you actually understanding what it is I'm trying to say. So all this is about behavior. It's all complicated stuff, and it's made more complicated by what's going on globally in this sort of world of contradictions. You know, you think about it, we live at a time where there's never been more information, and yet there's never been harder to separate fake news from real news. We live at a time where there's never been more wealth, and yet there's never been greater inequality. We live in a time where globalism is, is inarguable. Like, of course we're connected. The system is connected. Our economies are connected. And yet at the same time, there's this alarming rise in populism, nationalism, and protectionism. And then the fourth contradiction is this contradiction of climate change. And the reason why it's a contradiction is because we observe it, but very few of us actually do anything about it. And I use as the example, the, the fires in Australia. And here's some stats from that horrifying period of time last year. 1.25 billion animals, 400 megatons, just alarming. And what's most interesting about this is that psychologically, physiologically, we look at a video of that. And this is from a, a talk or a, a article written by uh, Charles Homans from the New York Times. We look at that video of the burning and we say to ourselves, oh my God, this is my future. This is, or at least my children, this is terrible. But something else is happening which is within us, within each of us, there's this little tiny thing called the amygdala. And the amygdala is the creature that tells us not to worry, the creature that tells us it's somebody else's problem. You know, Drew mentioned the word fear. The real issue we have with sustainability is not enough of us are genuinely afraid. The fire is somebody else's problem. The fires in California are somebody else's problem. The rising tides in Cambodia are somebody else's problem. The amygdala is brilliant at pushing away the adversity and pushing away the fear. And Homans goes on to say, even in religious history, disasters have spotty track record as a behavior correcting device for an internally optimistic species. 
we've been to this rodeo before and we don't actually believe that it's going to happen for all the science for all the declaration we don't believe and because we don't believe and because we aren't we don't truly feel fear fear we don't act differently we don't behave differently i mean think about the pandemic this is the view february early march uh, of this year we in the united states were looking at the other part of the world going oh they're screwed we're fine they're screwed we don't need to change our behavior it's their problem and then four short months later this is what the map looked like similarly climate change there's plenty of alarming graphs this is one i found recently the you know 2099 prediction half the world will be drought ridden including chunks of the united states and pretty much all of europe but again, it's theoretical. It's not human. It's not personal. This is this doesn't impact me at all. So why should I care? So the first question for each of you, the 10, I'm gonna give you 10 seconds just to think about, do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe it? And you go, of course you believe it. Well, if you believe it, are you doing anything differently? Probably not. And then the funny thing is the non-believers have been around throughout history, right? I mean, this is the Spanish influenza, 1918. Turns out the anti-maskers were alive and well back then, too. They didn't believe it was really going to happen. They didn't even believe it was happening. And so, again, to me, if you want to change the outcome of anything, continent, country, planet, relationship, parent-child, it doesn't matter. The thing that is most important to hone in on is the behaviors of the the people involved, our behaviors, their behaviors, any of these issues that we face collectively. We have to put the human truth on the table as a central capacity to figure out how to innovate to solve the problem, really. I think about innovation a lot. And, you know, the fact is most innovation fails. Most startups, 75 percent of startups fail. 84 percent of digital transformation fails. 95 percent of corporate innovation fails. And the reason why it fails is not structural. It's not the ability to invent something, to build something. It's actually it, it fails because it completely disregards the truth of the humans involved. And I, you know, I, I say this to a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but if you want to get better at anything, get better at understanding our humanity. And I think we have this very naive view that man, homo sapien, has become homo erectus and the creature on the left has significantly evolved to the creature on the right. And the creature on the right is really rational, really pragmatic, great critical thinking, always making the right decisions for the good of the self, good of the whole. I think that's not true. I think the creature on the right is actually remarkably like the creature on the left like hasn't really changed all that much. And I'm a big Maslow fan. And, you know, his his point of view is, listen, the most people walk the earth every day, bottom up, focused on their physiological needs, their safety needs, and their needs for love and belonging. And a handful move up to the other two levels. But what's interesting about that is sustainability isn't part of this equation. As long as I have food and shelter, why should I care about climate change? As long as I have personal security, why should I care about climate change? As long as I have my family, why should I care? So our capacity to change our behaviors, we put through the lens of Maslow, and we also put through the lens of this other equation, which is my capacity or willingness to change is predicated on the benefits to me far exceeding the cost to me. And I won't belabor the Starbucks example, but it, it's a proof of that, of that equation. Money is a cost, money is a benefit, absolutely. That's called investing. Time is a cost, time is a benefit. That's that's working so you get a paid vacation. 
But the big one is there are a slew of physiological and psychological costs we consider when we decide to change our behavior or not, and there are a slew of benefits. And so there's this ROI that we do consciously about whether or not we're willing to change. And I'll give you my example. You know, Kate and I were thinking about buying a new car. We gave up our car six months ago. We want to get a car now after six months of not having one. And what do we do? We start looking at luxury automobiles because psychologically that's what we want. And at the same time, like the sustainability guy, I mean, going, what are you doing? What are you doing? Henry David Thoreau once said, the cost of a thing is the amount of life you are willing to pay for it. The cost of sustainability for us collectively and individually is predicated on what are we willing to give up? Are we willing to give up a luxury automobile in order to increase the chance that the world's going to end up in a better place? Maybe, maybe not. Our behaviors are the root of, frankly, all of our issues. You know, this is a slide I used in another presentation. This is alarming. This is all from behavior. 28% of college kids are on antidepressants, 40% of Americans are beach, one in four are lonely. Loneliness is a tantamount to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's not a social epidemic, it's a health epidemic. The wrong behaviors are killing us in real terms and they will continue to kill us and they will continue to get in the way of sustainability until we're prepared to implement the right behaviors. And I'm talking about you and me, man. I'm not talking about those people out there. I'm talking about you and me. I'm not getting an Audi anymore. I'm getting a Prius. This is my view, right? What decimates economies and planets is not out there, it's in here. The issue is behaviors, it's not capital, it's not carbon, and it's not competition. So I think you get this by now, right? I don't need to say these words. You know the Pacific trash vortex? 1.8 trillion pieces of trash floating in an area the size of Texas or Nigeria. There are two others in the world floating around. You created that. I created that. We are, are, are the cause of the vortex. So we don't change our behaviors. <laughs> you get this. I don't need to say this. Okay. So, you know, here's a question. What's your carbon footprint, man? Like I keep, I, I was speaking all over the world last year, traveling all over the world. And now I'm like, uh, I don't know if I can travel. I mean, they say a flight between New York and L.A. Is, is a ton of carbon, you know, or, you know, you shop at H&M. That fast fashion thing is in, an environmental killer. Like, have you ever looked at your own at your own footprint? Here's the rub. We will not change unless we have to. Drew mentioned fear. We don't have fear yet. We have theoretical fear, intellectual fear. We don't have real I am holding on to a life raft, and if I let go, I will drown. We don't have the fear. You know, the only motivation that really works is fear, is real deep-seated fear, desperation. I use this as my silly example, going to the doctor, I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to lose 10 pounds for five years. I haven't lost 10 pounds. I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, Chris, if you don't lose 10 pounds, you're going to double the risk of a heart attack. I will lose 10 pounds by next Friday. So part of this is finding our inner fear, turning Drew's fear declaration into our own fear, our own sense of true fear, which is an unpleasant proposition. Who the hell wants to do that? But I don't know any other way to motivate any of us to change our behavior. But one thing we can do is go backwards in time. I, I, I was a history major in undergrad, 
And, uh, you know, I think going backwards is often helpful before we go forwards. The funny thing about that is this, which is Hegel once said, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. There are lessons galore. We have been in this place before, not in terms of planet sustainability, but human sustainability, empire sustainability, you know, company sustainability. This is not this is not new. So along the way, I found this guy named Sir John Glubb. He's from uh, early uh, 20th century, around like 1930s, 40s. And he, he was a kind of a strange guy, but he spent a lot of his time studying empires. And he wrote this piece called The Fate of Empires. It's about 30 pages long. I encourage everybody to read it. And basically what he arrived at is every empire since the Mongols and the, and the Assyrians, the British, name an empire, every empire lasts about 250 years. And each one follows the exact same arc. And the arc goes something like this, the age of pioneers. This is when, just like startups, we are all in this together. We have this vision, maybe a desperation to get from where we are to some other place. We have a sense of self-sacrifice. We collaborate, we compromise, we partner, we are open, we are brave, we are courageous. There's a bigger mission than just us. And then we move into the age of conquest. In today's world, that's probably more like coopetition. And then we move into the age of commerce and things start to stabilize and a middle class emerges. And then we move into, uh-oh, the age of affluence. And this is where things start falling apart. And he talks about gradually, almost imperceptibly, the age of affluence silences the voice of duty. The object of the young and the ambitious is no longer fame, honor, or service, but cash. Think about this arc relative to the United States of America. Bang, 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 bang. And then the last two stages or ages, which is really where the shit hits the fan, the age of intellect, where we move from a society of we to a society of me. And finally, the age of decadence. And one thing about the age of decadence he calls out in 1945 when he wrote this piece is, Sports stars and entertainment celebrities become more important than the intellectuals, the scientists, the researchers, or the academics. Kim Kardashian people. So my view is that the developed world, not just America, but large chunks of the developed world have basically followed this arc. And we are decidedly in the age of decadence. An age where hubris has replaced humility, greed has replaced goodness, Cash has replaced collective responsibility. And instead of that commitment to self-sacrifice as manifest by pioneers, it has been replaced by self-servingness. So what do we do? What do we do? I don't really know, but I have some theories. I think the first thing is we have to embrace that there is only one sustainability. It's not, this is not about the environment. This is about everything. It's about the economy, it's about society, it's about cultures, it's, it's about everything. Because at the end of the day, the planet is one ecosystem, right? It's not, these are not separate topics. They're all intrinsically and extrinsically linked. A friend of mine by the name of Spencer Glenn, he's a really, really brilliant guy. And he, um, he used to work at Wellington Management, and now he works for the Woods Hole Institute. He's just a brilliant guy, and he gave a talk last year at a very exclusive investment conference on climate change. And you can actually, it's on YouTube, I would encourage everybody to read it, but what he said as part of that talk is, as noted, 
Civilization is built on a stable climate. Civilization, not economy, civilization is built on stable climate, and we are now moving into instability. And I'm quite sure that people's financial models don't reflect that. Again, we, you know, our, one of our behaviors is to manage a lot of information. We tend to create discrete, turn things into discrete propositions. Climate change is not a discrete proposition. It is very much, as I said, intrinsically linked in, in everything that is going on and everything that we do. Back to what do we do? What do we do? I think we have to go back to the future. I think we have to become pioneers again. I think the way to offset the age of decadence is to return to our roots as pioneers, as people who are brave, people who are, who are willing to sacrifice, people who are willing to collaborate with people who have a vision for a better future, willing to take risk, partner. Like we've got to affect a sensibility that's fundamentally different than the sensibility that much of the developed world has today. And then I think there are five other things we can do along with that. They're all kind of trite, but I think they're fundamentally true is that each of us has to lead. We have to not lean forward. We have to lead forward. Like this is no, you know, as much as the governments and corporations have responsibility here, I think this is fundamentally an individualistic issue. And, and Drew said it, you know, I mean, we're excited by the number of people taken to the streets. Well, we need even more people taken to the streets, including you and me. Somehow we've got to find desperation. We've got to find shared adversity. Like if we don't turn climate change into the enemy, we won't do really much of anything about it. And go back to this, right? No desperation, no action. You know, I think about the, this, I found this along the way, you know, Newton's first law, right? An object will remain at rest or in uniform motion in straight line unless acted upon by an external force. Well, there's a sort of an equivalent that this woman, Aileen Hallsworth, came up with. Behavior tends to follow the status quo unless acted on by a decrease in friction or increase in fuel. So we need to find fuel in the form of shared adversity. Interestingly, you know, when 9-11 happened, which, you know, just our anniversary last week, I saw shared adversity. I saw behavior change. I saw people coming together in New York and beyond. I saw Americans uniting to rally against a foe. The problem was three weeks later, it was gone. It was not sustained. And I think that's maybe an irony is that we have to figure out how to sustain adversity, how to sustain a sense of desperation, sustain the idea of the enemy. The good news is 30 years from now, enough homes will have been destroyed, enough lives will have been lost, enough pain will have been, been impacted that I think we'll be able to sustain it. But why can't we get there sooner? Why can't we get there today? Obstacles as lever, again, a good pioneer is really great at figuring out how to get over barriers. And really great is this idea called reverse innovation, which is simply doing a lot with not a lot of resources. We can't rely on money to solve this problem. We have to be pioneers and we have to be inventive. Point four is loving our differences, which is it takes a village to solve the problems of the village. It takes diversity. I saw this at Harvard. Like the best teams were the one that had the most diverse perspectives. But but in loving our differences, we have to let go with our fixation on being right and actually open up our minds to the possibility that we might be wrong. There's this interesting book by a guy named Matthew Syed about rebel ideas, and he talks about the ascent of, uh, of Everest, the John Krakauer book, and, and the nine lives lost because the diversity of opinion wasn't listened to by the, the, lead, the lead guy on the, on the trek. 
and and subsequently the decisions made were the wrong decisions. Another angle on that is Google's work around the importance of psychological safety. We've got to create environments where it's okay for people to actually step forward with different ideas, wholly different ideas, and not be pushed down or rejected simply because they're different. And then the, the fifth point is this idea of redefining success, redefining the measures of all this, you know, and you know, for forever, it's been all about GDP, and now there's the Global Innovation Index, and Drew talked about the sustainability goals, and I'm a big supporter. I think these are all the right goals, but the problem with having 17 goals is the majority of people can't, can't, can't attach to them. It's too complicated. And so how do we wrap it all together in a way where the country, the planet can come together and march towards a sustainable world as measured by one thing, not 17 things? And I have been working on this wacky idea that was derived from something Macron said, which was this, for society to be sustainable, you have to restore the equality of chances. Sustainability is attached to the quality of chances. I take that idea, I take Maslow, and I've been working on this wacky thing called the Latitude Index, which is looking at the health of a society, the health of a planet, through a Maslowian prism focused on the structural outcomes, the personal individual outcomes, and then the environmental outcomes that all define not just a sustainable planet, but a healthy planet in every form. And then the last one is the hardest one. I think we all have to look in the mirror. I had to look in the mirror on my stupid car purchase. Like, Chris, really? You're gonna buy a luxury automobile that gets 20 miles to the gallon, really? And in looking in the mirror, I think we have to recognize a new set of behaviors that are an offset to the amygdala. Remember, the amygdala is in there saying, don't worry, man, it's all going to be fine. Don't worry. Those, that video of those fires, that's somebody else's problem. And so I think behaviorally, I think all of us may want to consider how do we become more open? How do we let our own ego? Out? How, do we let, how do we make it more about we versus me? How do, we, how do we let go of our legacy notions and how do we adopt new notions? And fundamentally, how do we affect the courage to affect the sacrifice to affect a different outcome? Nobody here wants to sacrifice. The people that the sacrifice are the ones who are brave. And I think we all need to be braver, myself included. And then it's just summing it up, you know, right? Any planet, we are just us. You know, the outcome for the planet is a manifestation of our behaviors. If we behave one way, it will end up a certain way. If we behave another way, it will end up a different way. So my encouragement to everybody is let's all become pioneers. You know, you are not powerless. You are actually powerful. If you band together as pioneers, you have the ability to change the course of this planet. But you have to do it selflessly. You have to do it with an open mind willingness to learn and a, you know, and a commitment and a recognition, this is not about you, this is really about us. I'll leave you a couple, one last thing. Tim Cook once said this, and I just love it, right? It's our, our responsibility is to infuse the technology we make with the humanity that makes us, and I just modify that. The lives we, we are making these lives, we are making these planets, but the choices are really choices of behavior more than anything. And so my final thing to say to you is, you know, are you willing? Are you up for it? And if you ever want to talk about this stuff, I'd be happy to talk about it. So there you have it. Thank, um, you, thank you so much, Chris. Did I do what you wanted me to do? <laughs> Would I actually have something to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> so I made a lot of notes here. And I think I'm a little bit prone to just let it 
talk for itself. But no, I'm actually going to ask you one thing because I think the problem is that that we see the world through different lenses, right? So even though you say you're open, more open-minded, and you know, be uh, more tolerant or be more um, be more like a pioneer and and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. will you will probably have a lot of people saying, "Yeah, but I don't know how." You know, mm-hmm. I or or I am where in some respect they wouldn't be, or in some respect they they maybe would be. So I guess my my question is a little bit, you know, so so how do how do we teach, or do we teach, or what do we actually do? Because I can go home and look in the mirror, but then what? You know. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an question? excellent question. I mean, I think the first, sort of from a logic flow, I think the first thing is, do you accept that behavior is the root cause of a lot of consequence, including your own personal consequence, world consequence? Do you accept that? If the answer is yes, then the second question is, well, what are your behaviors? Like, no, I'm not talking about you know, your policies or philosophies, I'm talking about your behaviors and how do those behaviors align with the outcome that, you know, sustainability sort of promises or, or, or suggests. And then the third thing is if you, in your audit, you determine that your behaviors are not actually perfectly aligned, then I think, okay, what can I do differently? Like in my case, there are a bunch of things I can do differently after I do my audit. And so I just need to start doing them. Some are through the measure of me, some are through my profession, some are through my talks. You know, I can start changing what I'm doing, even on the on the margin, a little bit to contribute more to the outcome that I think we're all after. And then the last thing I'd say is nobody can do this alone. Everybody must band together. This is a worldwide, this is a worldwide movement. And so finding people that are equally interested in modifying their own behavior, owning their own behavior, willing to sacrifice and willing willing to change in order to have the outcome change. And that may not be as specific as you want, but I think it's I actually think it's not it's not that complicated. But it's it is complicated for a lot of people to do, to look at themselves and to hold themselves accountable to a different set of behaviors to change to change the outcome. It's complicated for people to actually care about other people. Go back to Maslow, you know? Maslow's all about me, man. And as long as I'm good, I'm good. So, I don't know. Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> I, think, I think we'll leave it there. So, the, the, uh, to sum it up, the issue of sustainability is an issue of behavior. You know, it often it. becomes someone else's problem. And you need to look at the benefit. And hopefully the benefit at some point will be larger than the cost to me. Exactly. And there's only one sustainability. Beautiful. I, I love the way that we end this conference with that message. It always starts with, with the behaviors of me. Yeah. Thank All you right. so well much, said. Chris. Well said, Thomas. Love you guys. Thanks for including me. So in, uh... happy. So happy for you joining us. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Ciao, baby. Ciao. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.